what a month it's been. We had ICU rocks. Conservative oxygen is okay. You might be better in hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. Hyperion. Targeted temperature managed at 33 degrees versus 37 degrees for 24 hours. Post in or out of hospital cardiac arrest. The non-shockable rhythm improved survival. Citrus ALI reported no organ failure. Resolution benefit with vitamin C infusion versus placebo, but suggested improved secondary outcomes that need exploring. Crash 3 TXA versus placebo in less than three hours after severe TBI, excluding GTS3 with or the most severe, led to decrease in head injury-related deaths in a massive study. High-flow nasal cannula plus non-invasive ventilation was better than high-flow nasal cannula alone at preventing reintubation and high-risk extubation. Sepsis Act tells us celepressin is like vasopressor in sepsis and has a vasopressor sparing effect, but maybe that's about it. And Ethicus 2 tells us about what's changed in end-of-life care in 15 years in Europe. So if you have the patience, listen to the next 40 minutes and we'll go through them in a bit more detail. Welcome to the Critique Podcast. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go over the critical care events, articles that have caught our eye recently. It's been a long time between podcasts for a few reasons. The first is that it was a quiet few months in the ICU literature and we have tried over the years to focus on higher impact RCTs. Of course, this was completely shattered in October where papers were timed to be released with the European meetings and the World Congress in Melbourne. So there are a lot of papers to talk about. The other reason for the delay is it's just been a chance to reflect on our Journal Club podcast format, as after many years I thought it was probably getting a bit dry. So hopefully this is the last solo podcast from Critique, and I'm pleased to say we are embarking on a team effort from here on in. So next month I will be joined by a colleague and it'll all be a surprise um, and she's younger and more interesting than me. So we're aiming for a light touch where we will discuss the major journals, our thoughts, what else we have noticed going on in ICU and medicine, what we have read and heard and hopefully as we find our feet, the voices of younger generations. But for now and hopefully for the last time, it is me presenting the journals that caught my eye in the last couple of months. So let's start with JAMA, the Sepsis Act randomized clinical trial. So this is the effect of celepressin versus placebo on ventilator and vasopressor-free days in patients with septic shock. Um, the rationale for this trial is that noradrenaline is not always effective at restoring blood pressure in septic shock and has potential for side effects including myocardial and peripheral ischemia. As a result of this there has been this search for other non-catecholaminergic agents such as vasopressin 
that induce vasoconstriction via V1 receptor stimulation in vascular smooth muscle. However, the other V receptor effects of vasopressin are not all beneficial. So that's increased procoagulant factors, salt and water retention, nitric oxide release, and corticosteroid stimulation. So enter selipressin, a selective vasopressin V1A receptor agonist potentially able to attenuate sepsis-induced vasodilatation, vascular leakage, and tissue edema without the V1B or V2-mediated effects. In a phase 2A trial in patients with septic shock, selipressin reduced noradrenaline requirements, increased the proportion of patients not receiving mechanical ventilation, and appeared to speed resolution of shock. This phase 2b3 trial of selipressin in adult patients with vasopressor-dependent septic shock is the next step in the assessment of selipressin as a vasopressor in septic shock. So what do they do? Blinded, randomized, placebo-controlled, seamless phase 2b3 adaptive clinical trial designed to determine the efficacy of multiple dosing regimens of selipressin, which is the phase one bit, and confirm efficacy of dose regimen, which is the phase two part of the trial, in treatment of septic shock. In terms of analysis, this is kind of interesting. So the adaptive design allowed maximum final sample size of 1,800 evaluable patients across parts one and two, providing 91% power to determine that selipressin yielded a gain of 1.5 ventilator and a vasopressor free days compared to placebo. Now, ventilator and vasopressor free days is a new endpoint for which a meaningful clinical difference has not been established. They chose one and a half days because that represented a 7.5% to 15% relative change, assuming a control rate of between 10 and 20 ventilator and vasopressor free days based on recent sepsis trials. During part one, a pre-specified Bayesian inference model was used to generate monthly updated probabilities of treatment success for each selipressin group, in which probability of treatment success was the probability that a selipressin group, if tested in the part two of the study, would be statistically superior by the end of the trial. If after 200 or more patients, all selipressin groups had less than 5% probability of success, the trial would stop for futility. If with 300 or more patients, any group had more than 90% probability of treatment success, the trial transitioned to part two. Otherwise, part one would continue to 800 patients at which point, if at least one selipressin group had more than 25% probability of treatment success, the trial would transition to part two. Otherwise, it would terminate and be reported as a phase 2b trial. So that's a lot to take in, but again, we should start getting used to this idea of adaptive Bayesian trials. So they enrolled adults within 12 hours of proven or suspected infection and septic shock defined the usual way, um, you know, requiring more than five mics of NORAD or more than one hour despite more than one litre of IV fluid. The intervention arm received one of three selipressin dosing um, regimens and that was 1.7, 2.5 or 3.5 nanograms per kilo per minute with the potential to add a fourth which is 5 nanograms per kilo per minute. Doses were selected based on analysis of the prior feasibility study. 
um, the protocol instructed the bedside clinician to maintain target map while weaning other vasopressors. And if the target map could not be maintained or vasopressors could not be weaned, the study drug infusion rate could be increased by up to 50%. At baseline, the groups were similar. The primary outcome, ventilator and vasopressor-free days up to day 30, did not differ. It was 15 versus 14.5. And there was no difference in three key secondary outcomes, 90-day all-cause mortality, 30-day kidney replacement, 30-day ICU-free days, no difference in safety endpoints. In terms of vasopressor use and shock management, the study drug was administered for a mean of 38 hours and overall um, led initially to a higher MAP with a decrease in other vasopressors inversely correlated to the celopressin dosage. So more celopressin equals less other vasopressor. There was also an increase in urine output and a decrease on cardiovascular SOFA scores in the celopressin groups. So overall, the Sepsis Act trial reports no difference in ventilator or vasopressor-free days or secondary outcomes or safety with three dosing regimens of celopressin versus placebo plus usual vasopressor for septic shock. It did have an other vasopressor sparing effect like we see with vasopressin. And it did introduce or reintroduce two new concepts, which is a combined uh, ventilator and vasopressor-free day as an endpoint and used adaptive design. Okay, let's stay with JAMA uh, and go to the High Ween study group and the Reva Research Network's paper which is effect of post-extubation high-flow nasal oxygen with non-invasive ventilation versus high-flow nasal oxygen alone on reintubation among patients at high risk of extubation failure. So does oxygen delivered by high-flow nasal cannula plus non-invasive ventilation reduce the risk of reintubation in this group compared with high-flow nasal cannula alone? If you recall... In 2016, there were two high-flow nasal cannula trials of note published in JAMA. Both were by Hernandez and colleagues. The first was high-flow versus non-invasive for post-extubation high-risk patients. In this trial, high-flow nasal cannula immediately post-extubation was not inferior to non-invasive ventilation for risk of re-intubation. So at 72 hours, the rate was 23% for high flow and 19% for non-invasive. And for post-extubation respiratory failure, 27% versus 40%. And that was in a group at high risk of reintubation. The caveats are it was a high risk group. The treatment was delivered for the first 24 hours only. And by necessity, it was unblinded. Now the second Hernandez JAMA 2016 study was high-flow nasal cannula versus standard oxygen for low-risk post-extubation patients. Uh, and high-flow nasal cannula was independently, inversely associated with all-cause reintubation. At 72 hours, it was significantly decreased from 12% with just oxygen to 5% with high-flow. Um, and this was mainly due to a decrease in respiratory-related reasons for reintubation in the high-flow group, group. With a multivariate analysis, 
revealing a number needed to treat of 14. So this study in JAMA enrolled 648 adult patients from 30 French ICUs and 641 completed the study. You had to be intubated for more than 24 hours, ready for extubation after a successful spontaneous breathing trial, considered high risk of extubation failure, and that was over 65 years or underlying cardiac or respiratory disease, and they excluded long-term non-invasive TBI, chronic neuromuscular disease. They were randomized to high flow, which is 50 liters a minute, with FiO2 titrated to SATs greater than or equal to 92%, or high flow plus non-invasive. So that was the same high flow regime um, plus non-invasive that was initiated immediately post-extubation for at least four hours, for a minimum of 12 hours a day for 48 hours, and it was continuous overnight. The NIV aimed for a minimum pressure support of five, tidal volumes of six to eight, predicted body weight, PEEP five to 10, and again, FiO2 of 92%. And both therapies were applied for a minimum of 48 hours. At baseline, uh, the groups were the same. They'd been ventilated for five days prior to extubation, and there'd been a difficult or prolonged weaning, 32%. Now, the primary outcome, which is the proportion of patients who required re-intubation within the seven days following extubation was 11.8% for the high flow plus non-invasive versus 18.2% for the high flow with a difference of minus 6.4%, 95 confidence intervals of minus 12 to minus 0.9%, p-value of 0.02. The secondary outcomes, there were 11 pre-specified of which six showed no difference and the outcomes that were improved with high flow plus non-invasive were a post-extubation respiratory failure at day seven, which was 21 versus 29% in favor of the non-invasive group, 12% versus 20% for re-intubation rates until ICU discharge, again in favor of the non-invasive group, and there was no difference in the ICU mortality rates um, and the median time to reintubation was not different between the groups. It was 33 hours in the non-invasive versus 39 hours in the high flow alone. So this multi-center open label RCT of high flow plus NIV compared to high flow alone in high risk patients for reintubation showed that the high flow and NIV group was superior to high flow alone at preventing reintubation within seven days. So, should we all be using this combination therapy, high flow and NIV, in our high risk patients post extubation? Food for thought. Okay, let's move on to two big hitter trials in the New England Journal. The first is ICU rocks conservative oxygen therapy during mechanical ventilation in the ICU. So supplemental oxygen, we have given it to patients in the ICU for decades. Patients who require invasive mechanical ventilation are often exposed to high fractions of expired oxygen and are higher than normal partial pressure of arterial oxygen. There is some evidence that hyperoxemia in adults undergoing mechanical ventilation is associated with increased mortality and fewer ventilator-free days. 
the largest trial was stopped early. ICU Rock sets out to answer the question, does conservative oxygen therapy lead to increased VFDs compared to usual oxygen therapy? What did they do? So adults receiving mechanical ventilation expected to be ventilated the day after tomorrow were enrolled within two hours of mechanical ventilation. A thousand patients from 21 ICUs in Australia and New Zealand were enrolled, 92% were emergency, 40% had acute brain pathology. They were randomized to conservative versus usual oxygen. Conservative was 91 to 96% sats and they could use an FI2 of 0.21 if they wanted. Usual oxygen, there was no protocol defined upper limit of sats and they discouraged the use of an FI2 less than 0.3. In terms of treatment separation, FIO2 of 0.21 was received more in the conservative arm. That was for a median of 29 hours versus one hour in the other arm and less time with SATs of 97% or higher. So it was median of 27 versus 49 hours. It's worth noting that a third of the conservative patients had SATs greater than 96% and the treatment separation dropped off by day five. The primary outcome? There was no difference in the median duration of number of VFDs, 21.3 versus 22.1 days, p-value of 0.8. In terms of secondary outcomes, there was no difference in long-term survival. There were differences in function and quality of life at day 180. The conservative group were less likely to have severe mobility issues. There was no difference in ICU or hospital length of stay renal replacement therapy, tracheostomy. Subgroup analysis revealed a highly significant finding of increased VFDs in patients with hypoxic ischemic brain injury. Post hoc analysis of this hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy subgroup showed um, a 43% mortality and a Kaplan-Meier curve suggesting better survival in the conservative group. In addition, the Glasgow Outcome Scale six months uh, after enrolment showed a changed distribution of outcomes with improved outcomes in the conservative group, which was significant. So overall, conservative oxygen therapy, SATs of 91 to 96%, was not associated with improved ventilator-free days at day 28. Of interest, there was difference in some functional outcomes at six months and the hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy subgroup post hoc analysis revealed improved survival and outcomes at six months. There will be a lot of discussion around treatment separation, secondary outcomes, the HIE post hoc analysis and whether or not this means we should and could safely adopt a conservative oxygen strategy in our ICU. Okay, the second big New England Journal paper was the Crick's Trigacep Group targeted temperature management for cardiac arrest with non-shockable rhythms. So the 2015 ILCOR guidelines recommended target temperature management between 32 and 36 degrees Celsius for all patients successfully resuscitated from cardiac arrest who remain in coma. 
the interpretation of the evidence behind these recommendations remains controversial, debated, and practice varies. The application of TTM to patients with non-shockable rhythms is even less clear. This cohort are the majority, and overall outcomes are very poor. So, the therapeutic hypothermia after cardiac arrest in non-shockable rhythms, the Hyperion trial, was designed to assess whether moderate therapeutic hypothermia at 33 degrees Celsius, as compared with targeted normotherapy, 37 degrees Celsius, would improve neurological outcome in patients with coma who had been successfully resuscitated after cardiac arrest with non-shockable rhythm. So what did they do? A total of 584 patients from 25 French ICUs were enrolled in this open-label, blinded outcome assessor, pragmatic, multi-center RCT. Enrolled patients were adults resuscitated from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest or in hospital cardiac arrest from any cause, GCS less than or equal to 8. Of note, exclusion criteria included a no-flow time, that is collapse to CPR, of greater than 10 minutes, a low-flow time, CPR to ROSC, of greater than 60 minutes, and major hemodynamic instability. Patients were randomised to moderate therapeutic hypothermia, 33 degrees Celsius for 24 hours with a slow rewarming at a rate of 0.25 to 0.5 degrees Celsius per hour to a temperature of 36.5 to 37.5 degrees Celsius and that was maintained for a further 24 hours, so 48 hours of control. Targeted normal therapy was the other arm and that was 37 degrees for 24 hours, maintained at 36.5 to 37.5 for the second 24 hours. Again, 48 hours of control. Cooling was achieved at a median of 16 minutes and was effectively maintained for the 24-hour period. The primary outcome was proportion of patients alive at day 90 with a CPC score of 1, that is good cerebral performance or minor disability, or two, moderate disability. This was 10.2% in hypothermia versus 5.7% in normothermia, difference of 4.5 percentage points, 95 confidence intervals of 0.1 to 8.9, a p-value of 0.04, and this effect was consistent across pre-specified subgroups. 90-day mortality did not differ significantly. It was 81.3% in the hypothermia group versus 83.2% in the normothermia group. CPC3 was 7% in hypothermia versus 10% in normothermia. CPC4 was 0.4% and 0%. Pre-specified adverse events did not differ significantly between groups. This included duration of mechanical ventilation or ICU length of stay in those who died and survived. So overall, moderate TTM for patients with coma who had been resuscitated from cardiac arrest with a non-shockable rhythm led to a higher percentage of survivors with CPC 1 or 2 at day 90. The number needed to treat is 22. There was no difference in mortality. And eyeballing the overall result looks like the increase in CPC 1 and 2 came from the CPC 3 and downwards patients. So this study supports moderate TTM for 24 hours.
Okay, let's go back to JAMA and to the big topical issue of vitamin C and sepsis. So this is the effect of vitamin C infusion on organ failure and biomarkers of inflammation and vascular injury in patients with sepsis and severe acute respiratory failure. There's been a spike of interest in vitamin C with some evidence it attenuates systemic inflammation, corrects coagulopathy, attenuates vascular injury. The Citrus ALI, cool name, trial examines the effect of IV administration of high-dose vitamin C on organ failure scores and biomarkers of inflammation and vascular injury among patients with sepsis and acute respiratory distress syndrome. So what did they do? They enrolled ICU patients receiving mechanical ventilation with a PF ratio less than 300, bilateral test X-ray opacities, new or worsening respiratory symptoms, no evidence of left atrial hypertension, suspected or proven infection, and two of four SERS criteria, and all had to be met within a 24-hour period. So sepsis and ARDS, got it. So 167 patients were randomized to vitamin C or placebo. The vitamin C was IV at 50 milligrams per kilogram at actual body weight every six hours for 96 hours. At baseline, that was similar, although there was more respiratory and less abdominal sepsis in the vitamin C group. Primary outcome, there was no difference in the modified mean SOFA score at 96 hours. It decreased from 9.8 to 6.8 versus 10.3 to 6.8. There was no difference in CRP and thrombomodulin at 168 hours. There were 46 pre-specified secondary outcomes. There was no difference in 43 of them. Day 28 mortality was 46% in placebo, 30% in vitamin C. Um, so, and the Kaplan-Meier survival curves, the two groups were significantly different using the Wilcoxon test. ICU free days to day 28 was 10.7 vitamin C versus 7.7 placebo, mean difference of 3.2, p-value 0.03. Hospital free days were 22.6% vitamin C, 15.5% placebo. Vitamin C levels were low in all patients and increased in the vitamin C group. So this is a well-designed and the largest RCT of vitamin C in critical illness. The primary outcomes were not different. So high-dose vitamin C infusion did not improve organ failure scores or biomarkers in patients with sepsis and ARDS. The improvement in secondary outcomes, mortality and length of stay are encouraging, but with so many secondary outcomes and no evidence of biological benefit should be considered exploratory only. It appears we need more larger, well-designed RCTs to get our head around vitamin C. Okay, let's go to The Lancet for the CRASH-3 trial, effective tranexamic acid on death, disability, vascular occlusive events, and other morbidities in patients with acute TBI. So the CRASH-2 trial reported tranexamic acid within three hours of injury reduces death in patients with traumatic extracranial bleeding. Before CRASH-3, a meta-analysis of all RCTs of TXA in acute TBI reported two small trials of TXA with a total of 510 patients showing a statistically significant reduction in death. However, given the small size of the trials, this was considered hypothesis generating. 
bring on Crash 3, an international multi-center randomized placebo-controlled trial of TXA versus placebo on death and disability in patients with TBI. The details? Well, first of all, it's extraordinary. Seven years, 12,737 patients from 175 hospitals, 29 countries. The initial design, adults with TBI within three hours of injury, GCS less than or equal to 12, or any intracranial bleeding on CT scan with no major extracranial bleeding were enrolled. In September 16, the eligibility criteria changed from uh, eight hours of injury to three hours of injury due to evidence from an external trial regarding timing. So there was a change. Patients were randomized to TXA, a loading of one gram over 10 minutes, uh, followed by IV infusion of one gram over eight hours versus a matching placebo. The primary endpoint was changed again in September 16 to reflect the change inclusion criteria and became head injury death in hospital within 28 days of injury for patients treated within three hours of injury. Uh, and this was made without reference to unblinded trial data. Secondary outcomes were early head injury related deaths within 24 hours after injury, all cause and cause specific mortality, uh, major events, etc. Adverse events with 28 days of randomization. Um, and a diagnosis of DVT or PE was re recorded only if a positive result was found on imaging or at post-mortem. They report primary outcome, risk of head injury related death, 18.5% TXA versus 19%, 19.8% with placebo, relative risk 0.94, confidence intervals cross one, not significant. Pre-specified sensitivity analysis, excluding patients with a GCS score of three or bilateral unreactive pupils at baseline, the risk of head injury related death was 12.5% for TXA versus 14% for placebo, relative risk of 0.89 with 95% confidence intervals of 0.8 to 1.00. The risk of head injury related death in patients with mild to moderate head injury there was a relative risk of 0.78 with confidence intervals 0.64 to 0.95 with no difference in patients with severe head injury uh, with a p-value of heterogeneity of 0.03. Early treatment was more effective than later treatment in patients with mild and moderate head injury p-value of 0.005, but time to treatment had no obvious effect in patients with severe head injury. The risk of vascular occlusive events was similar in the TXA and placebo groups, and the risk of seizures was similar. The authors also pooled their results with a randomized trial of pre-hospital TXA in 967 patients with TBI that was published during the CRASH-3 study. The dose of TXA was the same as in CRASH-3 and patients with a GCS score of 3 and those with unreactive pupils at baseline were also excluded. The pooled trial results revealed a reduction in head injury related death with TXA and no increase in risk of vascular occlusive events or seizures. So overall, CRASH-3 found the risk of death from head injury was reduced in patients treated with TXA within three hours of injury, particularly when patients with GCS of three and with bilateral unreactive pupils at baseline were excluded. There was no 
evidence of an increase in disability among survivors or increased risk of vascular occlusive events. Now this is a truly diverse study that enrolled a huge cohort of patients around the world. This makes it a great study, but we'll also add a debate about validity in individual healthcare environments. Okay, in JAMA we have a paper from August, I seem to recall, um, which we haven't talked about yet. Um, so this is the effect of an ICU diary on PTSD among patients receiving mechanical ventilation. So the psychological and emotional sequelae of ICU survivorship are well described, including anxiety, depression, PTSD, and complicated grief for families. The possibility that ICU diaries might help reduce these psychological adverse outcomes has created interest over the last decade. The rationale is providing objective information in the form of a diary at discharge may assist impaired recall and fill memory gaps, assist in gaining a sense of reality and abandon unrealistic experiences created by sedation or delusions, resolve difference in experience with families. However, previous studies exploring the usefulness of ICU diaries in preventing psychological morbidity have been conducted in small or select samples with various design characteristics, outcome measures and length of follow-up that compromised comparison. This multi-centre study was designed to assess the effects of an ICU diary on the occurrence of mental health consequences in patients and their families in the ICU setting. So what did they do and find? So it was an assessor-blinded multi-centre RCT in 35 French ICUs, 709 adult patients with one family member each who received ventilation for 48 hours for at least um, two days of ICU admission were, were eligible. Um, 657 were randomised, 339 were assessed three months after ICU discharge. The intervention group, 355, had an ICU diary filled in by clinicians and family members. The control group, 354, had usual care without an ICU diary. The primary outcome was significant PTSD symptoms three months after ICU discharge using the impact event scale revised and was 30% in the intervention group, 34% in the control, p-value of 0.39. Secondary outcomes also measured at three months included significant PTSD symptoms in family members, anxiety and depression in patients and family members, and patient memory, memories of the ICU stay. And there were no significant differences in any of the six pre-specified comparative secondary outcomes. So overall, an ICU diary filled in by clinicians and family members did not reduce the incidence of significant PTSD symptoms at three months. So why didn't diaries make a difference? Well, the authors discussed that patients might not have interacted with the diary. They read it a median of three times less than previously reported. Delivery may have been suboptimal if not performed during a formal meeting. Reading the ICU diary can be stressful, yielding a negative emotional experience for some patients. Although the PTSD rate was in the middle range of the prevalence of PTSD in survivors of critical illness, the current study wasn't focused on high-risk patients. And although not discussed, it may be that the design and content of the, of the diary is not optimal. As an example, a third of reviewed diaries were illegible.
So this is a negative study, if we can say that, about ICU diaries, in that they didn't appear to make a difference. Uh, and I guess what it also raises is that we don't really understand the relationship of how diaries are filled in, by who, staff, families, patients, how they are accessed, what they say about the psychology of all the three parties involved, and what use they may be. So there's a lot to explore in this area. Let's finish up with ethicus. Changes in end-of-life practices in European intensive care units from 1999 to 2016. So end-of-life care is important and complex. We know that. It involves a spillover of science, personal identity, emotion, medical folklore. It is done differently by nation, region, unit, team. In 2003, Ethicus 1 was conducted in... It was published and it was conducted in 1999, 2037 European ICUs. And it reported a range of practice, including frequency of practice for patients dying in ICU. They told us that withholding life-prolonging therapies range from 16 to 70%, withdrawing 5 to 69%, active shortening of the dying process 0 to 19%, failed CPR 5 to 48%. Europe has changed in the ensuing decade. Attitudes, laws, recommendations and guidelines have changed. Paternalism persists, although shared decision-making is advocated. European public support for euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide has increased. However, the extent of change in end-of-life care across European ICUs remains unknown. This week in 2019, Ethicus 2 study reports on what has changed, repeating their study in 2015 and 16. So what did they do and find? So it was a prospective observational study of 1,785 patients who had limitations in life-prolonging therapies or died in 22 European ICUs versus data previously reported from the same ICUs in 1999-2000. This is a 15-year gap. The study definitions for end-of-life categories, and these are important to understand the study, withholding treatment, a decision was made not to start or increase a life-sustaining intervention. Withdrawing treatment, a decision was made to actively stop a life-sustaining intervention. Active shortening of dying, a circumstance in which someone performed an act with the specific intent of shortening the dying process. Failed CPR, death despite ventilation and cardiac massage. Brain death, documents cessation of cerebral function and meeting criteria for brain death. And a hierarchical categorization was used for the most active limitation if more than one occurred. So active shortening of dying was greater than withdrawing was greater than withholding. The results, more patients died with treatment limitations in 15, 16, 89.7% versus 68% in the 2000 study. Less patients died without any limitations, 10% versus 32%. ICUs changed between the study periods with increased admission numbers, bed numbers, reduced mortality and increased ethical practice scores which is a retrospective survey of 12 variables relating to ethical end-of-life care. 
The end of life categories vary by region. Median time from ICU admission until first limitation was shorter in the modern study, 2.1 versus 4 days, and the ICU length of stay was shorter, 4 versus 5 days. Survival to hospital discharge after any therapy limitation was higher in the modern group, 20.4% versus 5%. The improved survival was higher after withholding mechanical ventilation, 37 versus 12%, withholding vasopressors, 21 versus 5%, withholding renal replacement therapy, 27 versus 2%. So overall, these findings suggest end-of-life practices in European ICUs change from the 2000 study to the 2015 study. Patients who died were more likely to have limitations in life prolonging therapies in place. These occurred earlier and fewer patients died deaths without treatment limitations. ICUs reported improvement in self-reported ethical practice and there has been an increase in palliative and patient-centered care from government to bedside. Survival after treatment limitation improved. Now this is not surprising as more progressive, inclusive end-of-life care identifies patients who are not imminently dying, allowing decisions about less invasive care to be made weeks to months before death. Finally, active or assisted dying is uncommon. My last word, patient or surrogate voice is not reported in this study with capture of values and goals and alignment of care to them. And this is an ongoing challenge in the measurement of quality of ICU end-of-life care. So that's it for the podcast. There were more papers. There was a great ECMO for ARDS review in JAMA, which is worth reading, and a great review of ventilator-free days in critical care research if you don't understand how they work in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine and a review of ARDS ECMO ventilation strategies in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. So come to the website and have a look. Otherwise, we'll see you next time, hopefully with a new format. Thank you. Mm-hmm.